Part 17 of Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Redman Volume 1 of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans Translated by Bernadotte Perrin Solon, Part 3 But in general Solon's laws concerning women seem very absurd. For instance, he permitted an adulterer caught in the act to be killed, but if a man committed rape upon a free woman, he was merely to be fined a hundred drachmas, and if he gained his end by persuasion, twenty drachmas, unless it were with one of those who sell themselves openly, meaning, of course, the courtesans, for these go openly to those who offer them their price. Still further, no man is allowed to sell a daughter or a sister unless he find that she is no longer a virgin. But to punish the same offence now severely and inexorably, and now mildly and pleasantly, making the penalty a slight fine, is unreasonable, unless money was scarce in the city at that time, and the difficulty of procuring it made these monetary punishments heavy. In the valuations of sacrificial offerings, at any rate, a sheep and a bushel of grain are reckoned at a drachma. The victor in the Isthmian games was to be paid a hundred drachmas, and the Olympic victor five hundred. The man who brought in a wolf was given five drachmas, and for a wolf's whelp one. The former sum, according to Demetrius the Falerian, was the price of an ox, the latter that of a sheep. For although the prices which Solon fixes in his sixteenth table are for choice victims, and naturally many times as great as those for ordinary ones, Still, even these are low in comparison with present prices. Now the Athenians were from of old great enemies of wolves, since their country was better for pasturage than for tillage. And there are those who say that their four tribes were originally named not from the sons of Ion, but from the classes into which occupations were divided. Thus the warriors were called Hoplitae, the craftsmen Ergodice, and of the remaining two the farmers were called Gileontes, the shepherds and herdsmen Aegicorice. Since the country was not supplied with water by ever-flowing rivers or lakes or copious springs, but most of the inhabitants used wells which had been dug, he made a law that where there was a public well within a hippicon, a distance of four furlongs, that should be used, but where the distance was greater than this, people must try to get water of their own. If, however, after digging to a depth of ten fathoms on their own land, they could not get water, then they might take it from a neighbour's well, filling a five-gallon jar twice a day, for he thought it his duty to aid the needy, not to provision the idle. He also showed great experience in the limits which he set to the planting of trees, 
no one could set out a tree in a field within five feet of his neighbour's field, or, in case it was a fig-tree or an olive-tree, within nine. For these reach out farther with their roots, and injure some trees by their proximity, taking away their nourishment, and emitting an exhalation which is sometimes noxious. He that would dig a pit or a trench must dig it at the distance of its own depth from his neighbours, and he that would set out hives of bees must put them three hundred feet away from those which another had already installed. Of the products of the soil, he allowed oil only to be sold abroad, but forbade the exportation of others. And if any did so export, the archon was to pronounce curses upon them, or else himself pay a hundred drachmas into the public treasury. His first table is the one which contains this law. One cannot therefore wholly disbelieve those who say that the exportation of figs was anciently forbidden, and that the one who showed up or pointed out such exporters was called a sycophant or fig-shower. He also enacted a law concerning injuries received from beasts, according to which a dog that had bitten anybody must be delivered up with a wooden collar three cubits long fastened to it. A happy device this for promoting safety. But the law concerning naturalized citizens is of doubtful character. He permitted only those to be made citizens who were permanently exiled from their own country, or who removed to Athens with their entire families to ply a trade. This he did, as we are told, not so much to drive away other foreigners, as to invite these particular ones to Athens with the full assurance of becoming citizens. He also thought that reliance could be placed both on those who had been forced to abandon their own country, and on those who had left it with a fixed purpose. Characteristic of Solon also was his regulation of the practice of eating at the public table in the town hall, for which his word was parasitine. The same person was not allowed to eat there often, but if one whose duty it was to eat there refused, he was punished. Solon thought the conduct of the first grasping, that of the second contemptuous of the public interests. All his laws were to have force for a hundred years, and they were written on axonies or wooden tablets which revolved with the oblong frames containing them. Slight remnants of these were still preserved in the Pritoneum when I was at Athens, and they were called, according to Aristotle, kerbice. Cretinus also, the comic poet, somewhere says, By Solon and by Draco too I make mine oath, whose kerbis now are used to parch our barleycorns. But some say that only those tablets which relate to sacred rites and sacrifices are properly called kerbis, and the rest are called axonies. However that may be, the council took a joint oath to ratify the laws of Solon, and each of the Thesmothetai, or guardians of the statutes, swore separately at the herald's stone in the market-place, 
vowing that if he transgressed the statutes in any way, he would dedicate at Delphi a golden statue of commensurate worth. Observing the irregularity of the month, and that the motion of the moon does not always coincide with the rising and setting of the sun, but that often she overtakes and passes the sun on the same day, he ordered that day to be called the Old and New, assigning the portion of it which preceded the conjunction to the expiring month, and the remaining portion to the month that was just beginning. He was thus the first, as it would seem, to understand Homer's verse, which speaks of a day when this month is waning and the next is setting in, and the day following this he called the first of the month. After the twentieth he did not count the days by adding them to twenty, but by subtracting them from thirty on a descending scale, like the waning of the moon. No sooner were the laws of Solon put into operation than some would come to him every day with praise or censure of them, or with advice to insert something into the documents, or take something out. Very numerous, too, were those who came to him with inquiries and questions about them, urging him to teach and make clear to them the meaning and purpose of each several item. He saw that to do this was out of the question, and that not to do it would bring odium upon him, and wishing to be wholly rid of these perplexities, and to escape from the captiousness and censoriousness of the citizens, for in great affairs, as he says himself, it is difficult to please all, he made his ownership of a vessel an excuse for foreign travel, and set sail after obtaining from the Athenians leave of absence for ten years. In this time he hoped they would be accustomed to his laws. In the first place, then, he went to Egypt, and lived, as he himself says, where Nile pours forth his floods near the Canobic shore. He also spent some time in studies with Xenophis of Heliopolis and Sunkis of Sais, who were very learned priests. From these, as Plato says, he heard the story of the lost Atlantis, and tried to introduce it in a poetical form to the Greeks. Next he sailed to Cyprus, and was greatly beloved of Philocyprus, one of the kings of the island. This prince had a small city, founded by Demophon, the son of Theseus, and lying near the river Clarius, in a position which was strong, but otherwise incommodious and sorry. Solon therefore persuaded him to remove the city to the fair plain which lay below it, and make it more spacious and pleasant. He also remained and took charge of the new city's consolidation, and helped to arrange it in the best possible manner, both for convenience of living and for safety. The result was that many colonists flocked to Philocyprus, and he was the envy of the other kings. He therefore paid Solon the honour of naming the new city after him, and called it Soli. Its name had been Ipaia. Solon himself also makes mention of this consolidation. 
In his elegies, namely, he addresses Philosypris and says, Now mayest thou long time be lord and master for the soli I hear, dwelling in this city thyself and thy family after thee. But may I and my swift ship, as we leave this storied isle, be brought upon our way in safety by Cypris of the Violet Crown. Upon this settlement of thine may she bestow favour and glory, and upon me an auspicious return to my fatherland. As for his interview with Croesus, some think to prove by chronology that it is fictitious. But when a story is so famous and so well attested, and, what is more to the point, when it comports so well with the character of Solon, and is so worthy of his magnanimity and wisdom, I do not propose to reject it out of deference to any chronological canons, so called, which thousands are to this day revising, without being able to bring their contradictions into any general agreement. So then, they say that Solon, on visiting Sardis at the invitation of Croesus, had much the same experience as an inland man who goes down for the first time to the sea. For just as such a man thinks each successive river that he sees to be the sea, so Solon, as he passed through the court and beheld many of the king's retainers in costly apparel and moving proudly amid a throng of courtiers and armed guards, thought each in turn to be Croesus, until he was brought to the king himself, who was decked out with everything in the way of precious stones, dyed raiment, and wrought gold that men deem remarkable or extravagant or enviable, in order that he might present a most august and gorgeous spectacle. But when Solon in this presence neither showed any astonishment at what he saw, nor made any such comments upon it as Croesus had expected, but actually made it clear to all discerning eyes that he despised such vulgarity and pettiness, the king ordered his treasure-chambers to be thrown open for the guest, and that he should be led about to behold the rest of his sumptuous equipments. Of this there was no need, for the man himself sufficed to give Solon an understanding of his character. However, when Solon had seen everything and had been conducted back again, Croesus asked him if he had ever known a happier man than he. Solon said he had, and that the man was Tellus, a fellow-citizen of his own. Tellus, he went on to say, had proved himself an honest man, had left reputable sons behind him, and had closed a life which knew no serious want with a glorious display of valour in behalf of his country. Croesus at once judged Solon to be a strange and uncouth fellow, since he did not make an abundance of gold and silver his measure of happiness, but admired the life and death of an ordinary private man more than all this display of power and sovereignty. Notwithstanding, he asked him again whether, next to Tellus, he knew any other man more fortunate than he. 
Again Solon said he did, naming Cleobis and Bito, men surpassing all others in brotherly love and in dutiful affection towards their mother. For once, he said, when the car in which she was riding was delayed by the oxen, they took the yoke upon their own shoulders and brought their mother to the temple of Hera, where her countrymen called her a happy woman, and her heart was rejoiced. Then, after sacrifice and feasting, they laid themselves to rest, and never rose again, but were found to have died a painless and tranquil death, with so great honour fresh upon them. What? said Croesus, who by this time was angered, dost thou not count us among happy men at all? Then Solon, who was unwilling to flatter him, and did not wish to exasperate him further, said, O king of Lydia, as the deity has given us Greeks all other blessings in moderation, so our moderation gives us a kind of wisdom which is timid, in all likelihood, and fit for common people, not one which is kingly and splendid. This wisdom, such as it is, observing that human life is ever subject to all sorts of vicissitudes, forbids us to be puffed up by the good things we have, or to admire a man's felicity while there is still time for it to change. For the future, which is advancing upon every one, is varied and uncertain. But when the deity bestows prosperity on a man up to the end, that man we consider happy. To pronounce any one happy, however, while he is still living and running the risks of life, is like proclaiming an athlete victorious and crowning him while he is still contending for the prize. The verdict is insecure and without authority. When he had said this, Solon departed, leaving Croesus vexed, but none the wiser for it. Now it so happened that Aesop, the writer of fables, was in Sardis, having been summoned thither by Croesus, and receiving much honour at his hands. He was distressed that Solon met with no kindly treatment, and said to him by way of advice, O Solon, our converse with kings should be either as rare or as pleasing as is possible. No, indeed, said Solon, but either as rare or as beneficial as is possible. At this time, then, Croesus held Solon in a contempt like this, but afterwards he encountered Cyrus, was defeated in battle, lost his city, and was taken alive and condemned to be burnt. And then, as he lay bound upon the pyre in the sight of all the Persians and of Cyrus himself, with all the reach and power of which his voice was capable, he called out thrice, O Solon! Cyrus then, astonished at this, sent men to ask him what man or god this Solon was, on whom alone he called in his extremity. And Croesus, without any concealment, said, This man was one of the sages of Greece, and I sent for him, 
not with any desire to hear or learn the things of which I stood in need, but in order that he might behold, and when he left me, bear testimony to the happiness I then enjoyed, the loss of which I now see to be a greater evil than its possession was a good. For when it was mine, the good I derived from it was matter of report and men's opinion, but its departure from me issues in terrible sufferings and irreparable calamities which are real. And that man, conjecturing this future from what he then saw, bade me look to the end of my life, and not let insecure conjectures embolden me to be proud and insolent. When this was reported to Cyrus, since he was a wiser man than Croesus, and saw the word of Solon confirmed in the example before him, he not only released Croesus, but actually held him in honour as long as he lived. And thus Solon had the reputation of saving one king and instructing another by means of a single saying. But the people of Athens were again divided into factions while Solon was away. The plain men were headed by Lycurgus, the shore men by Megacles, the son of Alcmeon, and the hillmen by Pisistratus. Among the last was the multitude of Thetes, who were the bitter enemies of the rich. As a consequence, though the city still observed the new laws, yet all were already expecting a revolution and desirous of a different form of government, not in hopes of inequality, but each party thinking to be bettered by the change and to get the entire mastery of its opponents. Such was the state of affairs when Solon returned to Athens. He was revered and honoured by all, but owing to his years he no longer had the strength or the ardour to speak and act in public as before. He did, however, confer privately with the chiefs of the opposing factions, endeavouring to reconcile and harmonise them, and Pisistratus seemed to pay him more heed than the others. For Pisistratus had an insinuating and agreeable quality in his address. He was ready to help the poor, and was reasonable and moderate in his enmities. Even those virtues which nature had denied him were imitated by him so successfully that he won more confidence than those who actually possessed them. He was thought to be a cautious and order-loving man, one that prized equality above all things, and would take it ill if any one disturbed the existing order and attempted a change. On these points, indeed, he completely deceived most people. But Solon quickly detected his real character, and was the first to perceive his secret designs. He did not, however, treat him as an enemy, but tried to soften and mould him by his instructions. He actually said to him and to others that if the desire for preeminence could but be banished from his soul and his eager passion for the tyranny be cured, no other man would be more naturally disposed to virtue or a better citizen. Thespis was now beginning to develop tragedy, 
and the attempt attracted most people because of its novelty, although it was not yet made a matter of competitive contest. Solon, therefore, who was naturally fond of hearing and learning anything new, and who in his old age more than ever before indulged himself in leisurely amusement, yes, and in wine and song, went to see Thespis act in his own play, as the custom of the ancient poets was. After the spectacle he accosted Thespis, and asked him if he was not ashamed to tell such lies in the presence of so many people. Thespis answered that there was no harm in talking and acting that way in play, whereupon Solon smote the ground sharply with his staff, and said, Soon, however, if we give play of this sort so much praise and honour, we shall find it in our solemn contracts. Now when Pisistratus, after inflicting a wound upon himself, came into the market-place riding in a chariot, and tried to exasperate the populace with the charge that his enemies had plotted against his life on account of his political opinions, and many of them greeted the charge with angry cries, Solon drew near and accosted him, saying, O son of Hippocrates, thou art playing the Homeric Odysseus badly, for when he disfigured himself it was to deceive his enemies, but thou doest it to mislead thy fellow-citizens. After this the multitude was ready to fight for Pisistratus, and a general assembly of the people was held. Here Ariston made a motion that Pisistratus be allowed a bodyguard of fifty club-bearers, but Solon formally opposed it, and said many things which were like what he has written in his poems. Ye have regard indeed to the speech and words of a wily man, yet every one of you walks with the steps of a fox, and in you all dwells an empty mind. But when he saw that the poor were tumultuously bent on gratifying Pisistratus, while the rich were fearfully slinking away from any conflict with him, he left the assembly, saying that he was wiser than the one party, and braver than the other, wiser than those who did not understand what was being done, and braver than those who, though they understood it, were nevertheless afraid to oppose the tyranny. So the people passed the decree, and then held Pisistratus to no strict account of the number of his club-bearers, but suffered him to keep and lead about in public as many as he wished, until at last he seized the Acropolis. When this had been done, and the city was in an uproar, Megacles straightway fled, with the rest of the Alcmionidae. But Solon, although he was now a very old man, and had none to support him, went nevertheless into the market-place, and reasoned with the citizens, partly blaming their folly and weakness, and partly encouraging them still, and exhorting them not to abandon their liberty. Then it was, too, that he uttered the famous saying, that earlier it had been easier for them to hinder the tyranny while it was in preparation, but now it was a greater and more glorious task to uproot and destroy it, when it had been already planted and was grown. 
no one had the courage to side with him, however, and so he retired to his own house, took his arms, and placed them in the street in front of his door, saying, I have done all I can to help my country and its laws. From that time on he lived in quiet retirement, and when his friends urged him to fly, he paid no heed to them, but kept on writing poems in which he heaped reproaches on the Athenians. If now ye suffer grievously through cowardice all your own, cherish no wrath against the gods for this, for ye yourselves increased the usurper's power by giving him a guard, and therefore are ye now in base subjection. In view of this, many warned him that the tyrant would put him to death, and asked him on what he relied that he was so lost to all sense, to which he answered, My old age. However, when Pisistratus had become master of the situation, he paid such court to Solon by honouring him, showing him kindness, and inviting him to his palace, that Solon actually became his counsellor, and approved of many of his acts. For he retained most of Solon's laws, observing them first himself, and compelling his friends to do so. For instance, he was summoned before the Areopagus on a charge of murder, when he was already tyrant, and presented himself there to make his defence in due form, but his accuser did not put in an appearance. He also made other laws himself, one of which provides that those who are maimed in war shall be maintained at the public charge. But Heraclides says that even before that, Solon had caused a decree to be passed to this effect in the case of Thersippus, who had been so maimed, and that Pisistratus was following his example. Moreover, Theophrastus writes that the law against idleness, in consequence of which the country became more productive and the city more tranquil, was not made by Solon, but by Pisistratus. Now Solon, after beginning his great work on the story or fable of the lost Atlantis, which, as he had heard from the learned men of Sais, particularly concerned the Athenians, abandoned it not for lack of leisure, as Plato says, but rather because of his old age, fearing the magnitude of the task. Footnote. There is no trace of any such work of Solon's, and the attribution of it to him is probably a play of Plato's fancy. End of footnote. For that he had abundant leisure, such verses as these testify. But I grow old, ever learning many things. And again, but now the works of the Cyprus-born goddess are dear to my soul, of Dionysus too, and the Muses, which impart delights to men. Plato, ambitious to elaborate and adorn the subject of the lost Atlantis, as if it were the soil of a fair estate unoccupied, but appropriately his by virtue of some kinship with Solon, began the work by laying out great porches, enclosures, and courtyards, such as no story, tale, or poesy ever had before. 
but he was late in beginning and ended his life before his work. Therefore the greater our delight in what he actually wrote, the greater is our distress in view of what he left undone. For as the Olympiaeum in the city of Athens, so the tale of the lost Atlantis in the wisdom of Plato is the only one among many beautiful works to remain unfinished. Well then, Solon lived on after Pisistratus had made himself tyrant, as Heraclides Ponticus states, a long time, but as Phanias of Erisos says, less than two years. For it was in the archonship of Comias that Pisistratus began his tyranny, and Phanias says that Solon died in the archonship of Hegestratus, the successor of Comias. The story that his body was burned and his ashes scattered on the island of Salamis is strange enough to be altogether incredible and fabulous, and yet it is given by noteworthy authors, and even by Aristotle the philosopher. End of Solon, Part 3 Recording by Graham Redmond